Um, in our study of the life of Elisha, we're focusing on the God-touched reality that he lived in. He lived in an anointing, an anointing for ministry, um, a supernatural touch on his life. He asked for it. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't arbitrarily given to him. He, before Elijah, um, his mentor, went home to heaven, Elisha said, I want a double portion of the spirit that the Lord has put on you. And God honored that prayer, and he met him at the level of his hunger, and Elisha functions in a high level of, of anointing. Um, and we're looking at those, and tonight I want to kind of touch on the, the area that was, in my opinion, most predominant in Elisha's life, which was his pr prophetic ability, words of knowledge, prophecy, they're woven in together in his life, and to see what that looks like, because this isn't a history lesson. If anything, this is like a, a um, it's like when you, when you smell something cooking in the kitchen and you walk in and you get hungry, that's what Elisha's life is supposed to be. And it's not a meal that you can't eat, that all of these gifts are still available. You've got to believe that, that we're not just saying, wow, good for Elisha. We're saying, wow, go God and do that in my life. And so that's one of the purposes of this series. So we're going to pick up in verse number nine of 2 Kings chapter three in a verse called winning through a word of knowledge. So uh, I'll explain the context in a minute. Let's read the verses. 2 Kings 3, verse number 9, the Bible says that the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to Elisha. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No. It is Yahweh, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hands of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. Verse 15 is important. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him and he said thus says the lord i will make this dry st uh, stream bed full of pools for thus says the lord you shall not see wind or rain but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink you your livestock and your animals this is a light thing in the sight of the lord he will also give the moabites into your hand and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell or chop down every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of their land with stones. The next morning about the time of the offering of the sacrifice, behold, water came down from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. One of the things I like about studying Old Testament historical books is that 
when we read them, and I mean this completely reverently, but very transparently, they can seem boring. They can seem like a historical narrative, just like we might read any other textbook. But when the spirit of wisdom and revelation enlightens us to the unpacking of what God has in these verses, these verses that on the surface can seem kind of benign actually come alive or we come alive to them. And so what we've got here is we've got this battle scene. It's, it's ancient Israel, and you've got the northern part of the nation of Israel, and it's called Israel, and you've got the southern part called Judah, and you've got a wicked king in the northern part, and his name is Joram or Jehoram, and you've got Jehoshaphat in the southern part, and then you've got these people called the Moabites, and they're the bad guys. And the Moabites have decided they're going to stop paying their taxes or their tribute to the northern part of Israel because now that Jehoram is king, the Moabites feel like, well, we don't have to pay the taxes to him that we used to pay to his father when his father was king. So Jehoram says, I'm not going to have any of that. And he calls for war. And he goes down to Jehoshaphat and he says, the Moabites don't want to pay me. I need your help. Let's go up there and let's whoop them. And then they also bring in a, an appointed king, a vassal state of Edom. And so you've got three kings that are coming together to try to completely defeat and destroy the Moabites so that they can take all of their stuff. And that's the context that we've got. And I want us to walk through this together. And then I also want us to apply some of this to our lives because this is not a history lesson. This is about you. This is about your God. This is about the fight for your life, your family, your testimony, your purpose, your mission, the glory of Jesus in your life, all of the good things that God puts in your heart. There's warfare over those things. There's an enemy king that doesn't want you to receive what God has destined to you to receive. And so there is a way to make war and win, but we're going to learn how not to do it, and then we're going to see how to do it. And Elisha's the guy that shows us how to do it. So let's go back up into verses number 9 and 10, and I'm going to be brief on these parts because I want to get down into the chunky stuff here in just a second. But look with me in verses 9 and 10, and I'm going to call this the time where God allows you to max out. God will let you max out just like he does these three kings. What does it look like? Well, first of all, look how they begin. They're going to go and beat the Moabites, and they're proactive, and they're unified. They've got a plan. It says the king of Israel, that's Jehoram, and was with the king of Judah, that's Jehoshaphat, and the king of Edom, who is an unnamed guy. It's kind of a no-name guy, but he's part of it too. And so you've got these proactive, unified guys that are coming together. They're going on a mission. They're going to destroy the enemy. They're, they're gung-ho. They're confident. They're, regular, they're ready to go. So they're proactive and they're unified, but there's one thing missing. They're absolutely prayerless. They never are seen to have paused and sought the Lord. They never decided, God, are you with us when we go up to battle? Israel had a history of losing battles that they engaged in without the presence or permission of the Lord. But now Israel, especially in northern part, under Jehoram's rule and his daddy Ahab, you remember Ahab and Jezebel? That's Jehoram's parents. And so they were wicked, and Jehoram's just slightly less wicked, and he's the one who's mustering it all up. And Jehoshaphat's a decent king. He's, he's not a godly king, but he's not anywhere near as evil as Jehoram. And yet Jehoshaphat unites and pairs up and gets into business with this wicked guy, and none of them are talking to God. And so that's the context. They're, they're clear on their mission. 
They see the objectives. They're ready to roll. They get all of their stuff together, and they set out to battle. Well, look in verse number 9. This is what happens to them. They became weary and weathered in the midst of this. The Bible says they had made this circuitous march of seven days, and it ends up that there's no water left. No water for the soldiers in the army or no water for the animals that followed them. And so they're going to battle, and it doesn't look like modern military warfare. So they're bringing their beasts with them. They're bringing food to eat. They're bringing beasts that will serve some purposes. And they're going on this battlefront journey, and they're having to make a long route. And as they're going, they didn't prepare well. And as as the journey got longer and the terrain was more tough and it's barren and it's hot and it's desert— Lo and behold, they are completely out of the very thing that they must have. They're going to die out there because they don't have any water. And it wasn't instantaneous. The way this works is they probably started realizing they were running out around day three or four. They did the math. They knew where they were. They knew they weren't going to make it. So they start rationing the water. People are getting weaker and weaker, but they're still surviving until ultimately there's no water left. And it is a beautiful picture of what happens to me and you when we're engaging in life disconnected from God. Now, I know none of y'all have ever been through a season like that, but I'll just speak personally because maybe I'm the guy in the room that's done that. But you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're you're fulfilling your obligations. You're trying your best to kind of keep up a rhythm of, of, of worship and work and family and paying the bills and all of the stuff that is, encompasses so many of our lives. And yet there's that, there's that distance that's bridging. Or maybe we put our hand to a specific thing, a project, a ministry, a vision, a dream, a goal, an opportunity, a partnership. Maybe we just decided in the name of Jesus, we're sick of being defeated. And so we get proactive and we say, we're going to do something about this. And yet all of this is happening in the energy of something called the flesh. And, and we run out of the water. The water often in Scripture is symbolic of the presence and the power and the refreshing of the Holy Spirit. And, and there's, listen, people like to tell you that your flesh can't do anything. Well, listen, the reality is that Paul said there's nothing good in your flesh, but it doesn't mean that we can't accomplish things in the flesh. The problem is, is they don't achieve and accomplish the purposes of God, and they leave us weary and worn like desert travelers who have no water. And that's what had happened to these guys. So you get down into verse number 10. What happens? Watch this. They become discouraged and doubting. The king of Israel, who's the apostate reprobate dude anyway, he does what a lot of people do. He gets himself in trouble and he blames God. He says, then the king of Israel said, alas, Yahweh, the Lord has called us three kings together, these three kings together to give them into the hand of Moab. And so all of a sudden, his plan starts going wrong, and he starts doing two things. He starts doubting, he's discouraged, and he starts doubting the mission, starts doubting his, um, his trajectory, and then he starts saying, God's doing this to us. And that's very common. That what, what, what can happen so often when we are recognizing that things aren't going the way that we want, we can, we can get into this situation of doubt and discouragement. And if we're not careful, we can be like this renegade king and we can say, man, the Lord's done all this horrible stuff to me. The Lord doesn't love me. The Lord's not taking care of me. No, in, in reality, when we get in seasons like that, the Lord may just be choosing not to bless the works of our flesh because he doesn't want us to ever do it again. How many of you have learned, do not raise your hand, you don't have to shout, it's a hypothetical question, but how many of you have learned that God will let your fleshly attempts to succeed fall just in order to get you to learn never to do it that way again? 
I mean, it's just common. And, and some of us are hardheads. And some of us think, oh, no, I was doing the right thing. I was doing it the wrong way. And so we just kind of tweak what we did the last time. And this time it's going to work. And it's just a different layer of flesh. And so what happens is, is this process has gone on. And so now they're at a place where they're, they're actually doubting the Lord and blaming the Lord. Now, let's get down into verses 11 through 14, because the story gets better when Elisha gets in the, in the mix. And that's where I want to get us to. And so when he allows you to max out your own strength, your own plans, your own flesh, now look at this and let's look at Elisha because there's times where God calls you to step up. The Lord is into partnerships. Some of us were taught that God is sovereign and he will do it all. And I do believe that God is sovereign, but I do not believe that he is obligated to do for us what he has completely empowered us to do for ourselves. And that's not fleshly, it just means this. It's stupid to pray for your bills to get paid when you won't go get a job. It's just dumb. That's not faith. I've got great faith. I just believe God's going to bless my, my laziness and my lack of initiative. He never blesses you above the level of your incompetency if, if we're negligent. So what does he like to do? He likes to say, why don't you supply some initiative and I will open doors for you. Open doors do you no good when you stand still. And so he gets you moving and he opens doors and that's what's going to happen here through Elisha. So here in verse number 11... It's a question from Jehoshaphat, and I think it's a question for every generation. And maybe somebody, will, maybe somebody will just hear the voice of the Father on this tonight. Verse number 11, Jehoshaphat said in the midst of this dilemma, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Okay, remember this. In this season of Israel's history, there is what we call a lot of polytheism in the land. That means Israel has gone apostate, especially in the northern half, and they are worshiping a lot of pagan gods in addition to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Yahweh, God, the Lord, is really one of many gods that are now worshiped in Israel. And so Jehoshaphat is not fighting against the culture, but he knows who he's with. He's with King Jehoram, whose parents introduced overt pagan idolatry into Israel, and they have their prophets. They have their false gods. Remember, Elijah did battle with them on the top of Mount Carmel. And so Jehoshaphat is very clear here. He says, we need a prophet, but not just any prophet. We need a real prophet. Is there not a prophet, prophet who speaks on behalf of the Lord here, on behalf of Yahweh? I, I just want to just kind of take this for a moment. That is the question in every generation. It's the question right now in our generation. Where are the prophets? Now, I'm not even talking about the office of a prophet or maybe even the, 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 the basic fu uh, function of a prophet. I'm, I'm asking probably more broadly, where are the voices that are in allegiance to the God of the Bible? Where are the people whose words will direct attention to Jesus, the Son of God? Where are the bold, courageous, trusting individuals who will, in allegiance and alliance with the Son of God who has saved them, make him the pinnacle and the crest of who they are and what their life communicates? Where are they? In every generation, I almost wish we had a, our teenagers in here tonight and our college students in here tonight, because that's, that's what we need to be. We need to be pouring that on them. 
and telling them that their generation must raise up and have raised up within them prophets and prophetesses, men and women that will raise up boldly, unapologetically, without being obnoxious about it, without being uh, unkind about it, but being unafraid with it and speak for the God of the Bible. You know, some of us, I'm looking in here, and we've got people in here who've got parents between the ages, uh, excuse me, got children between the ages of 2 and 18 years old. And I want to encourage you, especially while they're young, lay your hands on your children at night. I don't care if they're laughing, squirming, or they think it's funny. You know what you're doing. Lay your hands on your children and pray prayers like this. God, Make her a better woman when she's grown than her mother is. God, make my son a better man than his father is. God, give them the tongue of the learned. God, give them an anointing for the kingdom. We, we think so often in the past 40 years, Lord, m- make them excel in this. Make them, make them great in this. God, give them a home run swing. God, give her a genius brain. God, give her beauty. God, give him power. And, we, and listen, in and of themselves, those things are not necessarily wrong. But we pray those things so often as if they are the end game for the people of God. And, and the heart of heaven is saying, is there not a prophet in the land? Is there not a voice? I believe with all of my heart, if we as adults will maintain the continuum that God has us on right here at Newbridge, that we will see a crop of prophets raised up from our children and our grandchildren. We'll see it with our eyes, but not in the absence of us recognizing there's a need in this generation. There was a need in Jehoshaphat's moment, when they're struggling and there's dryness and they're dying and there's war coming, and, and Jehoshaphat just asks this question, is there not a prophet of the Lord here? Now, I love this. Look at this. We move from the question for every believer to a possibility for every believer. Because I'm just going to go ahead and tell you this. In, in, a, in the broadest sense, you can be Elisha. You can be this type of person in your generation. So what, is it, what, what do we read? One of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elisha. And Jehoshaphat said, I love this, the word of the Lord is with him. Jehoshaphat knew that Elisha was the real deal. And so the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom, they go to Elisha. I love that. Oh, God help us to find a day. Could you imagine a day in your generation where the political powers were seeking out the prophets? Y'all didn't feel me on that. Could you imagine what it would be like in our nation if in in Washington, D.C., they're calling up and saying, what's that lady's name down at Newbridge, down in Lawrenceville, Georgia? The word of the Lord is with her, and we need the word of the Lord. I mean, that is an actual reality if revival hits, and and the Spirit of God moves, and the church repents of her sins and gets hungry and calls out to the Lord. I can actually envision a day where there would be the desire in our politicians' heart to have the counsel of the church again. And so when we're looking at this, we see this possibility for every believer. It's very simple, and two things that are said about Elisha. First of all, he was known for his, his um, dedication. He's the guy who poured water on the hands of Elijah. We've said this a couple of times in Elisha's life. Everything is founded upon a servanthood heart, not a superstar heart. 
Elisha was a servant for probably close to a decade. And here we have it referenced. Elisha, now the, the prophet who is coming into the foray in his generation, he's known, first of all, he's the young man that used to pour the water on the hands of Elijah, our most revered prophet. So he's known for his dedication. Christian friend, listen to me on this. That's where it all begins. I know we live in a superstar generation, but God's not impressed with anything shiny. He loves his own glory. And when we try to manufacture a lesser glory or we're too easily impressed with a a temporal glory, God says, oh, you're just not ready yet. But if we'll come into that place where it's not about our glory ever, and and we'll just say, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy if I can... I can just be faithful in this season with what he's called me to be a servant in. And for Elisha, it was washing the hands of Elijah, but it didn't stop there. Jehoshaphat also not only knew him for his dedication, but he knew him for his discernment when he said, now the word of the Lord is with him. And so I love the fact that the two things that are describing Elisha at this time is he he was faithful to Elijah and he's got the heart of God. He hears the mouth of God. He has the mind of the Lord. And and so those are the things that were known about him. And and I just want to say, let's not not glamorize Elisha as if he is this superhuman individual. he's, He's made of the same stuff we're made of. He, he, he had to mortify the deeds of the flesh. He had, to, he had to discipline his mind. He had to put to death uh, the appetites of lesser things. And yet what happens is he, he comes into this rhythm with the heart of God. And he's living out days which turn into weeks, which turn into months, which turn into years, where he's walking with the Lord. He had to learn how to do all of that. And yet in it, he, he gained the mind of God. He heard God. He literally learned to be confident that he was hearing the voice of the Lord. I don't know if you allow yourself to consider that you can do the exact same thing. It's not for the bionic believer. It's, 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 it's not for the Wonder Woman of faith or the Superman of faith. We have God in us. And he's speaking all the time. The key is we've not yet really, and when I say we, it may not be you, it may not be me, but in general, the church in the West has not really learned to hear him. And the reason why is because a lot of other voices get to us more quickly and they give us what we think we need more quickly. And so we're not patient enough to wait to make sure that what we're hearing and how we're operating is the voice of the Lord. Elisha was known for that. So look at verse number 13. Look at this boldness, and I'll I'll help unpack this. So Elisha's the first one to speak. Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and this other king come into his presence, and look at his boldness. Elisha said to the king of Israel, he's talking to the king. He says, what have I got to do with you? And then look at it. Why don't you go to your mama's prophets? Why don't you go call on the prophets that your daddy used to call to? Now, I prayed earlier that we would not be obnoxious, so I'm not prepared to call Elisha obnoxious, but I'm not going to lie either and tell you that I don't really like this. I love this. Because he, he is like, oh, you're coming to see me now. Now when you're in trouble, you're the, you're the same family that hunted my, my, my predecessor, Elijah. You put a bounty on his head. You wanted to kill him, but now you've gotten yourself in a little bit of trouble. Where's your mama's prophets? Where's your daddy's prophets? I mean, are, are we allowed to do that? I don't know, but Elisha, listen, he, ha- he hears the voice of the Lord. 
So maybe it was the Lord speaking to him. Now, he probably learned it from Elijah because when Elijah met Ahab and Jezebel's prophets up on Mount Carmel, he said, you need to cry out louder to your false gods. You need to scream really loud to your false gods because they're probably in the bathroom. Did you know he said that? That's exactly the way the Hebrew reads when he's taunting the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Elijah's like, why don't you yell a little louder? They're probably relieving themselves. And so Elisha probably took notes that day and said, that was a good one, man, if I ever get into it. And so, so now here he is, and he, he's really digging. And, and I love the fact that the king of Israel didn't argue back. The Bible goes on to say in verse 13, the king of Israel said, no, I'm not going to call my mom and daddy's prophets. He says, it's the Lord. This is the Lord. Isn't that interesting that he saw the Lord, our God, as one among many gods? And he's saying, no, it's not those other gods, but it's, it's your God, Elisha, and, and we've done wrong, and we need his help because he's punishing us. So a lot of people wouldn't have done what Elisha did there. A lot of people would have obsessed over clarity in that moment. I need to be careful. I need, I'm talking to a king here that could take off my head. I, and I just love the fact that Elisha just chose courage instead of clarity. And and friends, we're living in a day where that's going to become more and more important. Some of us want clarity to the point of being addicted to it. Lord, give me clarity and I'll move. And the Lord, and I've said this before in this series, I really think it's an important part of it. The Lord is not obligated to give us clarity. The Lord is always eager to give us courage. And right now, some of you are in that desert where the water's drying up and the battle's still going to happen, and, and you're frozen. You've got the paralysis of analysis. You're just, you don't know what to do because you're waiting on clarity, and, and the Lord is waiting for you to ask for courage. And, and that's really the faith-building component. Listen, the more clarity you have, the less faith you need. And, and so sometimes God withholds clarity because he's choosing to develop courage in you. And it's frightening. I get it. I'm not unsympathetic to it. Listen, I live there. I, 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 if, I, just, I usually don't even ask anymore. I, I used to ask God how and why all of the time. Now, how am I going to do this? And why am I going to do this? And why are you doing this? And how are you going to get me out of this? And he's just such a good father because he's committed to your growth that sometimes he's just saying, are you still asking that? Yeah, you're cute. I love you. Are, you. are you still asking how I'm going to do it? Now, you don't believe me, but I'm going to show you in a moment. This plays out right here in this chapter. So let's, let's work down to it in this, this issue of Elisha being bold. And now look in verse number 14, because Elisha himself is in a little bit of a pickle, a quandary, if you will. But he's got a wisdom for every quandary. Elisha said in verse 14, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, (laughs) it's not polite, not politically correct, I would neither look at you nor see you. I mean, that's bold. This just doesn't go over well in our everybody gets a trophy generation. This This is just him looking at him, and he's saying to the king, he's like, man, if you weren't hanging out with Jehoshaphat, I would give you the hand. I, you just, you're out of here. So what, what is that? Well, listen, in this moment, you've got these two opposing pulls on Elisha's heart. In that moment, he's got to have in the moment the wisdom to know that he needs to help Jehoshaphat, and that outweighs his concern that he might have had for helping wicked Jehoram because it's a package deal. He doesn't want to help the wicked king, 
but he does want to help Jehoshaphat. And it's just emblematic of these, these conflicts, these quandaries, these difficult decisions you and I move in and out of life. And, and listen, there, there are very few things that are more frustrating to be caught somewhere between two decisions and you've got to pick and you've got to pick now. And again, that's the, that's, that's the danger of waiting on further and further and further clarity. I just sense right now, even tonight, that some in the room are, are in the middle of a crossroads decision and there's good and bad no matter which fork you take in the road. And, and you're just, you're obsessing over, I've got to know what's going to happen if I choose this, what's going to happen. I need to know. And, and you're looking for guarantees. And God's saying, I just want you to trust that I'm for you. I, I, I just want you to trust our relationship. And, and what you're really addicted to right now is you want an explanation. And so if, if he's building you, he's going to be bringing you to these repeated places in life where he's, going to, he's, he's literally not going to give you all the information that you crave. He's, he's actually going to, to, at times, bring you to breathless moments where you, you're just like, I can't believe he's not come through yet. I mean, I mean literally, I, I mean, I, some of y'all are looking at me like you've never experienced this. You are walking by faith, right? You've gone through this stuff. And, and, and it almost feels like we've done something wrong. And if we're being completely transparent, there are times where we think, what is he doing? And the reality is, when you hit these moments in life and these crossroads and these forks in the road, and it feels like death, it feels like you, you just don't know what to do, and, and you're tempted, if you're not tempted, you can do what these kings did. They doubted. And what, what God's saying is, you're actually right where I want you to be. You're doing great. I'm just not done yet. And so he's calling us to make those next steps. And that's what Elisha had to do. And ultimately, here's what he decides. So, y'all still with me? I'm going fast here. I got just a few more minutes, but stick with me. So now we get into verses 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. And this is where this word of knowledge comes into play, or this prophetic word there. You can debate which one this is, but they're tied in together here. It's very specific, the word that Elisha gets. And let's follow this. So this is when God empowers you to speak out. He's called you to step up after he allowed you to max out, and now he's going to have you speak out. This is what happens with Elisha. So look at this. I love that Elisha saw his need for a prepared heart. He's being required to give a word from the Lord. Look at the first thing he does. He says, bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. So I, I could really stop right here and just hunker down, and this would be the rest of the night, but I'm, I'm not going to. I, I, I want you to understand a spiritual dynamic, because most of you have been in church for, for enough years to where you're just used to the what of music. Music is a part of what we do when we gather together. But here's a moment where I want us to consider an element of why we do it. There is something, a principle in the heart of God, a, a never-ending release in the kingdom where the Lord attaches much of his activity to this element of music and worship. And so Elisha, and he's not the only one in the Old Testament especially, when there was a time where a prophetic word would be needed you're going to find often that the element of music is intentionally introduced. And the Bible is very clear here that 
it is when the musician started playing. Isn't it interesting, though, that they were going to war, but they made sure they brought a worshiper with them? I think that's significant. Worship is, is not, um, it, it's not an option in warfare. And so the guy comes or the lady comes, whoever's there, and they're playing. There's likely some singing. And the Bible says that. I'm not saying this. The Bible says that in that moment, in that intentional pursuit of, of music that honors the Lord in some way, it, the hand of the Lord comes upon the prophet. So when we gather together, here's a teaching moment. When we gather together, music is, is, is multifaceted. One, it's pleasurable. As the people of God, just historically, we're singers, we're worshipers. We may not all have skill at it, but that's just what the people of God do. They did it in heaven. We're going to do it in heaven. You may be pleased to remember that there'll be no preaching in heaven, but there's going to be a lot of singing and a lot of worship. Isn't it interesting that that's the activity that endures for eternity? That God so prioritizes and loves worship and music that we're going to be singing around the throne for all of eternity. And here in the, in the context of a prophetic flow, can I use that term? It was imperative that the Lord began to move and began to speak to Elisha, and Elisha had learned, let me, let me get my centering in the Lord, and he does that through music. So when we worship together, when we gather together, it's really important, I, I believe, that you actually come to a gathering pre-worshiping. That means that there's nothing magical about walking in the back doors and all of a sudden you, you open the doors to the sanctuary and it's like, and, and all of a sudden you just, you got your worship groove on. Come with a heart that's already calling for that. It's already yearning. And so when that hits Elisha, the Bible just says the hand of the Lord came upon him. I don't know if David's still in here. I just love David worshiping. He's got an, a breaker anointing on his life. David's the young man that's going to Africa. We took up $1,000, I think, maybe a little more for him last week. And it was, uh, he's probably back in here somewhere. He's back there. Yeah, he is back there. And so David walks up here and he don't care. He, he doesn't care. He's here to worship King Jesus and he just worships the Lord. And these little girls that are up here, some of you are sitting there all skeptical probably tonight. Ah, that's not real. They're just doing what their parents do. Well, what would you rather them be doing? Imitating the world or imitating the worshipers? Right? And so I don't, I don't know if it's real or not. It looked real to me. It felt really real. I was swimming in the river down here, and it felt really good. David's over here. You know, I got Art's got his hands up in the air, and the Lord's doing something. When was he doing all of that, by the way? Oh, about 45 minutes of music. Right in the midst of the worship. And the Lord just says, I'm going to touch her. I'm going to touch him. I'm going to touch this one. This one's kind of skeptical. I'm really going to touch him. You know, he just knows what we need. So all I'm saying, I actually feel like I'm going to frame up a whole message on this. I just feel grace on this. I don't have enough time with it tonight. But the point being is this. Music is important. And sometimes it's the most important thing. And that's coming from a guy who has a ministry built on teaching the Bible. And what I'm saying to you is sometimes the sermon's going to wait, and sometimes the sermon may be central. But there is an opportunity every time two or three are gathered in the name of the Lord, and especially when you've got somebody that can sing or play an instrument, it's just an opportunity to say, Lord, let your hand be on us. So approach it intentionally. That's my application of that. Verse number 16 and 17. So here it comes. We're finally getting to what the title of the message is about, winning through a word of knowledge. Here's the knowledge of how God would meet the need. Now watch this. It's really more about what than how. 
Verse number 16. Thus says the Lord. So here's the hand of the Lord's on Elisha, and he's speaking the word of God here. And he says, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. Some translations say, you dig out the ditches, I'll fill it with water. Regardless, the Lord's about to bring water. For thus says the Lord, you're not going to see the wind, you're not going to see the rain, but the stream bed will be filled with water. You're going to drink, your animals are going to drink, your livestock's going to drink, you're going to have everything you need. Now, I love this. Because when the word of the Lord comes... He tells them what? He tells them what? God speaks the what. The need of the hour is that they're going to die without water. And this is what God says. I'm going to put water all over this uh, dry gully. I'm going to fill it up. All of you are going to be fine. You're going to drink. Your livestock's going to drink. Your animals are going to drink. Notice what the Lord does not say, because this is how he builds faith in you. The Lord does not say, and here's how it's going to happen. Because you know that faith is tested. When God tells you that it's going to be okay, and you're looking at it, and you're like, I see dust. I don't see water. I don't see clouds. I don't see rain. I don't see a river. I don't see anything. And you know, the human heart is wanting to say, I hear you, Lord. You're God. I'm not allowed to argue with you or anything, but I'd really like to know how. But a prophetic word, when it is intended to build you up inwardly in your faith, in your spirit, in your trust, in your confidence, in your intimacy with the Lord, in in your relationship with the Lord, the Lord just tells you, I'm going to do something, and it's as if he says, now let me see if you're going to believe me. And the Lord doesn't say, now before you panic, I know you really, inquiring minds want to know, here's how I'm going to do it. By the way, it's very interesting. We're talking about this thousands of years later, and uh, we still don't know how he did it. We're, we're going to get to these verses in a moment. We're never told how he did it. The danger when you have a word spoken over your life or you believed that God has cemented something in your heart, and that can come in a lot of different ways. I don't have time to run down the itemized list here, but... There's a danger when God births in a moment of faith some, a confidence in your heart, and yet it seems impossible. And you are well aware of the obstacles, and you're actually not really aware of the resources. And yet you've learned that he's good, and he doesn't, he doesn't toy with you, he's not messing with you, he's not playing peekaboo or hide-and-go-seek, but you, you know you are to trust his heart, but you're standing in a desert, and he's promising water, and there's not a cloud in the sky. I love the fact that God says, you're not going to see the wind. He says it, look with me. Verse number 17, you're not going to see the wind. You're not going to see the rain. But I'm going to tell you, my child, I'm going to take care of all of this. We are wind and rain addicts. Lord, I believe you can send water, but like right now, tell me how. Lord, I believe you're going to come through for me because you're a good, good father. Lord, I'm trusting you, but God... I am aching for an explanation ahead of time. Lord, don't you provide a syllabus for my faith? God, can't you spell it all out ahead of time? 
Because after all, the just shall live by explanations. I know we don't believe that, but we do respond like that sometimes. And I'm, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I'm talking to us. We, I'm talking to all of us. We beg God to make us stronger in the faith. And we beg God, Lord, I want to grow. And I want to know Jesus more. And I want to operate in power. And I, I want an anointing. I want a God-touched life like Elisha had. And, and Lord, I, I want to be used of you. And I want to be that voice in my generation. And the Lord oftentimes is just a wise father. He says, yeah, I know you want all of that. And I want to do all of that for you. But you actually still trust in having all of the knowledge ahead of time so you can control the outcome. And he has to break us of that cycle. Some of you are in a challenging season where your resources do not lend themselves to you being confident of a a beneficial outcome. And yet the Lord is just trying to whisper or shout or or sing over you, I love you. I'm really never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm never going to abandon you. I'm not going to give you anything you don't need that's not good for you. And I'm not going to withhold any good thing from you. And he just, he, he has to bring this rest to our souls. And so some of you tonight, I, I'm, I just strongly sense this. He's saying, um, I'm going to bring you your water, but I, I really want you to look at me and stop scanning the horizon for the wind and the rain that you think is going to bring your breakthrough. I'm your breakthrough. I want you to look to me. And so I said I was going to finish this. I'm not, but I, I am going to give this verses 18 and 19. Because remember with me, what did they want? They really only needed one thing as far as they were concerned. What was it? Water. And so look at verses 18 and 19. Here's an exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask or think moment. Elisha's word concerning the outcome of the battle. Verse number 18, he says, Oh, and by the way, the water situation, this is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also, here's the word of knowledge. He is speaking words that are precise. He will also give the Moabites in your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and you shall cut down every tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of their land with stones. What's happening? So the hand of the Lord's on him. He speaks broadly about God taking care of the immediate need, and then he speaks precisely with words of knowledge. He's saying, I'm going to tell you things that you weren't even asked that you're going to not only going to get to drink and feed your your animals and survive the night but let me tell you this is what the lord is saying and he speaks prophetically with precise words of knowledge here's what's about to happen to you and when you receive that kind of ministry from a guy like elisha i'm going to tell you you don't need the wind You don't need to see the rain. You don't need to see any of that because there's something about a prophetic word. When it's received, it's tested. Here's how prophecy works. The prophecy is received from God. It's interpreted by man. It is spoken by man. It is then tested by those to whom it is spoken. And then it is embraced if it is true, if it resonates with the Spirit. And when you receive a prophetic word and you uh, align with it, it does something within you. It just moves within you. It galvanizes your soul. And that's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, above all the gifts, you need to seek after prophecy. Why? Because that is the word, the gift that builds up the body. So when we gathered here last week at this time, what was happening down front and even in some of the seats, there was such a strong, I don't even know if some of you have ever been in in an arena like that where that's happening. There was just prophetic words and words of knowledge that were going out 
over children, over adults, women and men. What was happening, the Lord is saying, I'm going to galvanize your souls. And every single one of us left here last Wednesday night and we were strengthened. Why? Because God, through a ministry that was anchored in music that night, put his hand on many people in here, and what happened is he just started speaking, and what was spoken was received, and we all left saying, our God is great. And it's not just some emotional, yeehaw, moment. It is substantial. And so a prophetic culture is, is essential to the health of the body of Christ. And we together, you got to remember, two years ago, this was a denominational church that had no grid for any of this. No grid for any of this. And yet the Father is so good, and he says to a group of people, he says, y'all love my word, and I love that you tremble at my word. And I'm going to give you the other side of the coin, which is the fullness and the power and the impartation of the gifts that my spirit gives to all. And as the authority of the word marries the necessity and the reality of the spirit in a group of people who are humble and holy, awesome things happen in the kingdom to the point where we're going to grow together And when a prophetic word is given in a dry desert with no visual on how God can fulfill that word, we're going to grow together to the extent that when the word is given, our first question isn't going to be, you need to explain to me how. How is that going to happen? Our first first response is going to be hands in the air saying, hallelujah, Lord, that sounds great. Can't wait to see what you're going to do. And so as Elisha has that anointing, He gets specific. Let me finish the story. I'm not even going to preach it. I'm just going to finish it. So God anoints him to advance on. And it says the next morning, down in the verses we didn't read, verses 20 through 24, it says the next morning, (laughs) behold, water came. That's, That's what it says. Water came from the direction of Edom. It is so ambiguous, so non-detailed. It's as if the Lord is saying, it doesn't even matter how, I just sent some water. And it just says the water came. And so remember, there's a bad guy army. They rise up early that same morning. They're looking down in that previously dry ditch. And what they see is this red liquid all over the ground. The sun's coming up. It's shining on the new water. And from a distance... The, the, the Moabites are looking and they say, those three armies all killed each other. Look at all the blood on the ground. And so they come down there to collect the spoils of the war. They go down there thinking that Edom and Israel and Judah have all killed each other. So the Moabites, the bad guys, run down to the battle scene. And when they turn the corner, they don't find dead bodies. They find guys with swords. And the Bible says that those three armies tear up the Moabites. And they won the battle. Not only did God send the water to meet the need that they knew they had, God sent the water to meet needs they didn't know they had. God used one supply not only to give them what they thought they needed, but to give them everything they didn't know they needed. That's how he wants to work in your life and my life. 
And so as I'm closing right now, we can no longer shrink God down to a man-sized vision. We have to stop that. I am in a stage in my journey where I would rather him rebuke me for being presumptuous about how big I thought he was than for him to be brokenhearted at how small and safe I made him. God, increase our faith. Father, in Jesus' mighty name, we need a hundred different versions of waters in this room. So we need a hundred different deliverances from obsessing over how you're going to come through for us. Father, I declare in this room to every human ear, to every angelic ear, and even in the face of every demon who accuses you to us and us to you, I declare that you are immeasurably good and worthy of our reckless faith and abandon. Help us no longer to shrink you down. Help us just to believe that you're as big as you say you are. And Lord, in the, in the intentional pursuit of you and your greatness, just show off in front of us, Lord. Just show off, glorify yourself right here in this generation. Do it in a way, Lord, that our doubts and our fears are burned away in the blaze of who you declare yourself to be. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.